It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. A dozen schools and five entire school districts across Colorado get failing grades for their performance. So the state is stepping in to force big changes. The schools are located across Colorado, from Aurora to the tiny Montezuma-Cortez district in southern Colorado. Reporter Nick Garcia of the nonprofit education news site Chalkbeat Colorado is following the story. He reports uh, Colorado has a rocky history of intervening when schools struggle. Nick, welcome. Thanks for having me, Nate. How did these schools get into so much trouble? Sure. So every year, students across the state take standardized tests in English, math, science, and juniors take the, now they'll take the SAT. Mm. And every year, the state takes those results and basically averages everything out and ranks schools from the best to the least performing schools. And the schools that fall in the bottom uh two categories of the rating system are flagged for possible intervention. If those schools don't make adequate progress within five years, then the state is required to step in. And now Colorado's constitution says schools are under what's called local control. In in other words, basically they're local school boards. So how can the state board of education step in and tell the schools what to do? Sure. So this is a little bit complicated and there are some legal questions here that could very well be settled in court. Uh, I want to make make clear there's no lawsuits yet, but there has, during this entire process, been a specter of a lawsuit. Um, Having said that, the state board is basically directing the schools to make these changes, and the schools are going along with it voluntarily. Uh, So while there is some leverage the state board has, including maybe stripping away a school district's accreditation, most of this, everything going on so far is copacetic and everyone's in agreement so far. If they can't order the schools to do to do things, how does this process then work? So they can order the. This is the this is the the thing. They can order the schools to do it, but the schools and the school boards can still say no. That's when we'll have a whole other sort of conflict that would have to be settled out through the courts. I see. But so far, all the schools, all the school districts are going along with what the state says. So these schools that are failing, uh, what are some of the options the state has, uh, starting with an individual school? Let's start there. Sure. So for individual schools, the state can direct that the school be closed. It can direct that the school be handed over to a charter school uh, operator. A school can create its own plan and seek new and different types of waivers from state laws that could allow schools to sort of accelerate learning. Um, or they could be uh, have a partnership with a third party to help uh, run a part of the school that they might not have a very good uh, grasp in handling themselves, such as teacher training or curriculum development. So it could be like a charter company coming in. It could be – what is this innovation status that, that I've heard about? Sure. So innovation status is a separate law that was created uh, in the late 2000s. And what it does is it gives school districts that remain under district control – charter-like waivers. So they can create a longer school day than the district has. They can choose their own curriculum. They can hire and fire and train teachers in their own way outside of a traditional union contract. And the creators of this innovation status um, really thought that allowing schools to have some flexibility would allow them to really tailor their their instruction and their model to uh, their individual student population. 
So some of these things sound like it could be extra work for teachers. Are, are teachers willing to go along with this type of system? Yeah, specifically with innovation, teachers have a big role in helping shape those plans. They have to approve those plans. Um, and so far, we've seen in school districts like Pueblo City Schools, Aurora, Denver, teachers go along with it for the most part. Uh, in Aurora, there it was touch and go for a little bit uh, as they try to negotiate different types of waivers with the union contract. But so far, most teachers that uh, and most of these schools are going along with it. Now, what about entire school districts with many schools involved? Sure. So entire school districts, there's a few other options. So, of course, they can direct individual schools to be shut down, or they can um, charterize some schools. But there are also the options of reorganizing the school district, merging with a nearby high-performing school district. That is a very complicated process, and that doesn't appear to be on the table yet, but it is possible. Um, The school districts can also enter into a third-party agreement with uh, some sort of consultant or some sort of a school operator to come in and help with um, running the school districts. Now, is that what what happened with uh, Montezuma Cortez? That's right. So Montezuma Cortez has chosen what's called the management pathway. So they're partnering with a university, the University of Virginia, which has a long uh, history of helping schools in Colorado improve, in fact, helping the uh, Montezuma Cortez already improve some schools to come in and work with... uh, those schools, specifically their middle schools and high schools, really put in some better practices to lead to better student learning. So it's better practices, but th- that doesn't sound like a big change for a district that, as you point out in your reporting, only had 10% of its fourth graders doing math at a grade level unless your state tests. Yeah, there's an ongoing question in the uh, education community here in Colorado and across the state about, and across the nation, rather, about what is the appropriate way for states to step in and help these low-performing schools. There are states like Tennessee and uh, New Jersey, where states have a much heavier hand. They, they will literally go in and run the schools themselves. That's not the case here in Colorado. And so I think it's an ongoing question that we'll know the answers in a couple of years. In the Julesburg district, the state ordered an online middle school to close. Uh, doesn't that just make the test scores look better without making a real difference for the other students in the district? Yeah, I think part of the... To be clear, the brick-and-motor schools in that tiny um, northeastern school district are doing fine. I see. And the students that were uh, in the high, online high school are doing fine as well. It was, for whatever reason, the, the school district could not get a handle on how to best serve those kids in the middle school. So when the state looked at other online options, they recognized that there were other paths and other schools for those kids to get a better shot. So they felt that would be a an appropriate uh, measure. Now, the state has stepped in before, but uh, with Cole Middle School in, in Denver, uh, but not a lot happened with that. Can you talk about maybe what the state's going to do differently this time as a result of the experience with Cole Middle School? Yeah, so very quickly in 2004, the state stepped in and handed Cole Cole Middle School in Northeast Denver over to a charter uh, school, KIPP. Uh, It was the very first time that KIPP had tried to take over a school to turn things around. And everyone I talked to looking back on on that particular matter said it went 
not so well. It didn't it, go well. It, it did not. Um, and I think most of the reason, one of the biggest reasons why it didn't go so well is because everything was crammed into just a few months, right? Uh, from the day that they said that the school was being taken over to them handing over the keys to Kip, it was, you know, uh, basically a seven or eight month process. So not a lot of time to plan. So what happens now? So now the state has been working for the last year or so with some of these schools to kind of create a runway to work through some of these bigger, touchier questions to really try and have a solution in place before July 1st when all of these changes need to take place. So that's the timeline for the state to act on the rest of these failing schools? That's right. So between now and the end of June, the State Board of Education and the uh, Colorado Department of Education is meeting with all of these schools and all of these school districts to hand out uh, their directives and everything needs to be in place by July 1st, uh, the start of the state's fiscal year. And could we see lawsuits from this? Yes. Um, There are some school districts who have uh, discussed the possibility of filing a lawsuit with the state, and uh, we'll see what happens. Nick, thanks for being here. Thank you. Nick Garcia is Deputy Bureau Chief of Chalkbeat, Colorado. There are links to his reporting at CPRnews.org. How to end homelessness? It's a question Denver has grappled with for well over a decade. Now a new approach is taking shape. Eric Solevon is executive director of Denver's Housing and Opportunities for People Everywhere, or Office of Hope, and Will Connolly directs the Metro Denver Homeless Initiative. They both stepped into these positions in January. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. In 2004, John Hickenlooper, then the mayor of Denver, created Denver's Road Home. It's an agency housed under the City Department of Human Services, and it was initially billed as the, quote, 10-year plan to end homelessness. It didn't reach that goal, Eric. So do efforts from the New Hope Office replace the mission of Denver's Road Home? No, I think the efforts uh, for the Hope Office is a broader in, in scale. Uh, Denver's Road Home, uh, at the time that it was created back in 2004, was addressing a different kind of Denver, a different kind of economics, a different kind of growth in the city. So now as we step back and look at the issue of affordable housing globally and see the role that Denver's Road, ha- Denver's Road Home will continue to play in the area of homelessness, we're going to connect those dots to affordable housing, permanent bridge supportive housing, and home ownership, as well as services and workforce training to take a new approach to a new Denver and a growing Denver. This new approach you're talking about, we know that the population has grown, but what are some of the other changes that you're seeing? Well, in addition to growth of population, we also have a tremendous economy. We have an unemployment rate of 2.7%, high workforce participation, and an entry-level job growth that is really attracting residents and continuing to spur that growth. And all those changes are spurring the need for affordable housing and for affordable housing across the economic scale. It's affordable housing is a term used based on sort of your perspective. Where am I in terms of what is affordable to me? For those making twelve and thirteen dollars an hour, we have nearly thirty percent of the population in our shelters who are working full time. And Will, you started your job in Denver in January after heading the Metro Homelessness Commission in Nashville for four years. The Metro Denver Homeless Initiative works in Denver and the seven surrounding counties independent of the city government. What do you see as advantages of developing a regional plan 
to address homelessness versus a plan just at the city level? Yeah, so the goal of MDHI is to build a regional system to end homelessness. So that might sound kind of idealistic or naive or just like just impossible. Um, But really what that means is that all of the resources and all of the programs that are dedicated to homelessness are aligned and they all share a set of common goals and are working towards really the main goal of getting every person or every family that's experiencing homelessness in the region into housing. So the regional work is important because people experiencing homelessness cross city and and county lines, um, sometimes for work, like we all do. Um, And so we need to have um, plans in place to make sure that we're coordinating um, our services and our approaches uh, to housing. And homelessness uh, providers have been working regionally for over 20 years in the seven counties. And so um, that history makes some of the work a little easier, even though it is is pretty tough to work regionally. So... What's different then? What, what what about this collaboration, this newness that you speak of, that will be different than what we've seen over the past 10, 12, 15 years? Yeah. So the homelessness field is changing, it all, just like any other industry. And so um, lately, there's a lot of talk and discussion about building systems that really work. Uh, and so coming at homelessness, addressing homelessness with a true systems approach versus having like a collection of programs, right, that are doing good stuff but aren't necessarily um, working off of a shared set of goals. So um, a system in homelessness at its core realizes that homelessness is a crisis, a person that's experiencing homelessness is in a state of emergency. So a system to end homelessness tries to solve that crisis as quickly as possible, even if that person has all sorts of other needs, like you know maybe um, substance use or mental health uh, services or you know budgeting or other life skills. Like those needs um, are important to address, but our uh, homeless system should really only be focused on getting people back into housing where they once were. And then we can let other systems take over and address those needs. Well, what are some of those programs in place now that help people achieve that goal, since there are still those that fall through the cracks? Yeah, so industries, you know, all over the country and the world, like, look at data to try to figure out how to improve, and the homelessness system is the same way, or we're trying to get there uh, more and more. Um, We have many providers that do great work. Um, One uh, is Volunteers of America. They work with veterans mostly, and they have rapid rehousing programs that um, work to connect people to housing in a very short period of time, and they do it in a very cost-effective way. So when someone comes into one of their programs, um, about 80% of the time they get into permanent housing, even though they have very high barriers to housing. And they only, and it only takes them about 90 days on average to do that, even in this challenging housing market. And the cost of that, just for one person um, to get into, to go from homelessness to housing through that VOA program, is only like 3,500 bucks to 5,500 bucks a person, which hmm. in our world is very cost effective. And Eric, I understand you focused your first 90 days on meeting with members of committees and agencies and programs that work on housing and homelessness issues. What are their frustrations? What do they see as roadblocks 
uh, to get people the help they need. Yeah, and I think the frustrations are, are vary, but three come to mind uh, that are the most common. You know, the first is as the city has grown and prospered, uh, the approach to the work around affordable housing across that economic scale from homelessness to home ownership, uh, there needs to be a shift and a change uh, because as sort of the systems and you know, the processes and the committees that were in the place 10 years ago, 12 years ago, uh, that doesn't work to address today's problem. Number two is how do we continue to open a better dialogue around this work? How do we hear from advocacy groups? How do we better coordinate within our own city government? How do we connect all those dots to say the city now has a collaborative strategy? And thirdly, you know, how do we begin to marshal these resources to make better and more strategic investments? I want to touch briefly on Denver's controversial urban camping ban. Eric, how do you feel about the way the ban has been enforced over the last 18 months? It's been in the news many times. You know, the, the camping ban, my, my thoughts that I will share on this, it's really uh, and the coverage of it, particularly the cleanup days, are really just capturing sort of a symptom of a larger problem around affordable housing and the housing responsibility that we as a community must meet. And when we think about the days of cleanups and the coverage of just the cleanup day, it doesn't fully capture the weeks of services and outreach that occurs. You know, between January and February, nearly 40 individuals at some of those sites have been housed. Uh, that's a tremendous number, and much more needs to be done. But as we think about uh, the Campy Man and its issues, uh, and again, it's, it's addressing a particular group of those who are chronically homeless, uh, of those who are and may be experiencing issues of mental health and uh, as well as substance abuse. But that is, as we, Will and I have discussed before, that is sort of a portion of the larger a population of those who are experiencing homelessness who is changing. So I mentioned nearly 30% now of those who are accessing our shelter providers are working full-time. They're working $12, $13 an hour but cannot afford the rent. We have a growing population of seniors um, who are accessing our shelters because they're in fixed incomes. Um, They're not able to maintain, retain in their homes. And we have a growing population of those with physical disabilities. So the integration of our services into these shelter providers to address the complexity of the needs and the changing population as the city continues to grow is how we need to address this work. But I, I think the concern was how the, the the ban was enforced with the tanking of blankets and, and tents and things during cold weather. Now, Mayor Hancock has announced an yes. amendment to the camping ban. He did that in December. Right. He said police would no longer seize tents mm-hmm. and blankets that belong to people who are homeless during cold weather. But weather's getting warmer. I mean, h- how do you envision the city's relationship with these encampments, with the uh, enforcement of this camping ban? And I think moving forward, the the relationship will continue to progress as we open up that dialogue, uh, as I have spoken with that. The dialogue groups, with who? With our advocacy groups, um, with uh, members uh, across that spectrum of advocacy, inviting them to the table to say, how do we look at this work together? In all this addressment around encampments, we really have to maintain issues of public safety and public health. So where can we improve public safety and public health on the streets? I think moving forward, as we think about the encamping ban, again, I want to come back to the housing responsibility in this city. And providing affordable housing is a way to address that issue in the long term. In Nashville, where you previously worked, Will, the mayor also got flack for enforcing a no urban camping policy policy. 
What are your thoughts on camping bans and these so-called cleanups? Yeah, they're, they're, my thoughts are very close to Eric's. Mm-hmm. Um, so camping bans and discussions around encampments and even just the fact that there are people sleeping outside or that our shelter system is getting more and more crowded and or, or that children are sleeping in cars, um, families are sleeping in cars. So all of those things are are symptoms, really, of a system that's not working um, to its fullest capacity. These policies often pop up in cities where best practices are still being implemented. So um, to me, the discussion around urban camping sheds more light on homelessness and increases conversation around homelessness, which is a really good thing. Like, we need more attention around this issue. But it's really a conversation or has been a conversation around symptoms versus solutions. And I think both Eric and I want to change the conversation and move it um, from just talking about the symptoms of homelessness to housing and actual solutions. Are there cities around the country that have the right systems in place, the places you're looking to? Yeah, of course. So um, uh, the National Alliance to End Homelessness just released a report a few months ago um, showing that 33 states uh, reported reductions in homelessness last year. Places like Houston have reduced homelessness uh, by 75% over the last five years. Made Obviously, that's a huge reduction. And so those places have uh, been talking about a systems approach to homelessness. They have uh, funders and homelessness leaders uh, setting shared goals together and working towards uh, offering an appropriate housing intervention for really everyone in the system who's experiencing homelessness. I mean, even though it's a really challenging housing market, there are, uh, especially in a regional approach, not just Denver, but other other counties, there are um, pockets where there, where housing is more affordable. So, are we reaching out in a um, in a uniform way with a consistent message to landlords about how um, good this renter could be, um, how much support this new tenant will have, um, and uh, so making sure that each part of our homelessness system is housing focused. And that means from shelter or street outreach all the way up through all the programs that we have, that we're having these conversations and that we're bringing um, landlords and other folks who have existing units to the table to help us try to figure this out. So it's it's convincing the landlords that these are not uh, uh, people they don't want to turn away. These are people they want to bring in to, to their homes. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. And maybe, you know, um, like homelessness, uh, in my view, is not an intrinsic characteristic of someone. It's not a personal failing, right? Um, so it's it's really just a crisis that someone is in, like I've mentioned. And so, um, so just kind of normalizing that versus like um, always pointing to the fact that they've experienced homelessness in the past because there is a lot of stigma around that. But um, yeah, we need so many people at the table to help us reduce homelessness in the region. And obviously, landlords, people that have units or people that know people that have units um, can help us. Can you talk about this new idea you're trying to implement, Will, where you want to find more manpower for homeless shelters across the area? I think you're talking about diversion. 
So yeah, uh, diversion is an idea that is being talked about around the country. And basically it means that shelter uh, should be the last resort, really just making sure that shelter is the last resort so that you have staff that are trained and really at the front door of the shelter. Like a gatekeeper kind of? Yeah, or just meeting people in a welcoming way, people who are trying to access shelter and just helping them problem solve and talk about um, are there any other options that they can pursue with some help, or maybe even financial help, to get them out of the homelessness system as quickly as possible? So once you get into the homelessness uh, system, it can be kind of easy to get stuck. And around the country, some communities have seen uh, like a 30% success rate on diversion, So, and other communities have seen up to like 70%. So it's, it's a new kind of best practice that's being developed, um, and we'd like to pilot it here in the region. In weeks, months, years? It's a goal for this year, definitely. Yeah. And something that, you know, we share as the Hope Office is looking to in the next coming weeks, you know, sort of announce a, a series, a series of announcements, some short-term action initiatives, some more pilot programs. And the diversion program, you know, we've been talking about is one of those areas. Let's try it out. I want to talk about tiny houses and tiny home villages, Will. Uh, there's one of the works in the Rhino Arts District. It's called Beloved Community Village. This is transitional housing for just over a dozen residents. There's another tiny house project in the works at St. Andrew's Episcopal Church. What do you think of this as an option for housing? Yeah, um, so I think like the camping ban, um, tiny homes bring a lot of attention to homelessness. People are just love that idea, it seems like. And so I think it's good to have a conversation around housing inventory and what housing is appropriate for people. Um, I haven't seen the design of of the tiny home village that you're talking about. I have heard about it. So I'd be interested to learn more about that. I think some questions that I have just in general about tiny homes or tiny houses like across the country is just, is that the best use of the space uh, wherever they're putting um, those homes versus building, you know, an apartment building where you could maybe house more folks. So just, you know, uh, usage of the land. Also, is um, there a plan for services? Um, how is it going to be managed? How is it going to be evaluated? So as I mentioned earlier, we're trying to take more of a data-driven approach and a performance um, approach to homelessness. So how are our programs um, doing in terms of getting people into housing. And I think we would take the same approach at looking at a tiny home village. So who is going in to the program? And at the end of that six months or whatever it is, yeah. are they exiting to a permanent housing destination? Now, these tiny home villages are self-governing and there is access to supportive services uh, the organizers of the Rhino Project are working with the city right now to get an unlisted temporary use permit. Nathan Hunt is with the Interfaith Alliance of Colorado, one of the groups behind this tiny home village. He says they expect to open mid to late April. The only caveat is that these temporary uses are only allowed to be on site for six months. So 179 days and then you got to relocate. So they're all built to be able to just be thrown up on the back of a flatbed truck and driven to the next place. Hunt says they hope to have three villages constructed by next winter. Eric, what do you think about allowing these tiny house villages to become permanent fixtures in Denver as opposed to temporary? Well, I think the, the temporary approach is the idea of piloting out yet another option, another tool in the toolbox of how do we address the need and the housing responsibility we all share to expand affordable housing. 
Uh, but pilots are great. We're, we pilot a lot of programs over the next couple of months. We're going to be trying a host of different things, bringing it together our agencies to say, how do we address this issue? And the need for over 20,000 units of affordable housing uh, that is needed today to get at that large sum, we need to try every approach we can put. We'll share an example of a a pilot program in the works. Yeah. So another one that we're looking at is how do we expand uh, eviction assistance? You know, one thing we're seeing as tenant rights, landlord rights, how do we begin to enter into that space and do it in a way that's going to address uh, a growing need within the city? Uh, so that way, one, we can prevent homelessness. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News, and we're talking about homelessness and affordable housing in Metro Denver. Joining me is Eric Solivan. He's the executive director of Denver's Housing and Opportunities for People Everywhere, or HOPE. Also here, Will Connolly. He directs the nonprofit Metro Denver Homeless Initiative. Will, your organization uh, funnels federal funds to dozens of housing projects, about 70 overall, and most of these funds come from the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, or HUD. Last year, MDHI helped distribute about $24 million of HUD money. President Trump has proposed a 13.2% cut to HUD in his budget. That's more than $6 billion. This, of course, could change, but what kind of impact could those cuts have on the work you do here on the ground? Yeah, so the budget talks have definitely been kind of a punch in the gut and a little demoralizing, you know. Um, This work is hard, and so hearing talk about those cuts, you know, it's tough, definitely. But we try to remain optimistic. But really, like, if what's been presented, you know, or what's being presented um, gets implemented, it will um, likely affect our public housing partners pretty directly. So there are a dozen public housing agencies in the metro Denver region, and they house thousands of people. And those cuts could affect their um, ability to continue to house those folks, and it could actually raise the rents of people who have very low incomes. And so even just moderate, you know, modest rent increases can put a, you know, a huge strain on individuals and families and could lead to increased homelessness. Are there contingency plans in place? Do you, do you sit down and have these conversations now and, and maybe find a different stream of funding? I mean, I, that's a lot of funding to yeah, find. But. And, and there's so much um, time, really. I mean, not a ton of time, but just so much you know, more discussion that needs to happen you know, in Washington about these cuts. And so we're not going to be paralyzed by these talks. We're going to continue to do what we do uh, and try to do it really well and, and hope for the best. You know, the cuts that are being proposed by the current administration will have a a drastic effect. Uh, And the administration is already, we're already meeting as an executive team and and hauling, trying to figure out how do we, in anticipation of those cuts, begin to address that gap to ensure that we don't put further pressure uh, on our shelter providers and to ensure that we can move the conversation of expanding affordable housing and not further limiting it. And last September, uh, Denver City Council approved the creation of the city's first affordable housing fund. Uh, increasing development fees and property taxes expected to bring in $150 million over the next 10 years. Uh, some said this is too modest. Uh, well, developers called it uh, overreach and said it could jack up market rents. Well, I think uh, the affordable housing fund is, again, another tool in the box as to how do we address and expand our needs around affordable housing. Um, It's going to create another revenue source, which, given the current federal environment, uh, it's absolutely timely. On Wednesday, Mayor Hancock unveiled some of the city's priorities this year, and that included a lot of talk about affordable housing or, quote, housing opportunity. 
such as finding ways to keep gentrification from pushing people uh, out of neighborhoods that are changing. Uh, Eric, what are some ways you think the city can prevent displacement? We've seen it uh, many times before. North Denver, we've seen that. Um, How do we solve that issue? Displacement is a complex issue. Uh, Another community that's going to undergo change in the coming years is Globeville, Ilaria, Swansea. Uh, the mayor, again, with his vision of let's bring together on the North Denver Collaborative, how do we address a whole host of issues? Uh, housing is another one of them. Uh, the Hope Office will be supporting that work to say how do we address issues of displacement? Is this um, a priority for your office? Uh, displacement? Absolutely. Because, again, it speaks to the broad and complexity of issues around affordable housing. If we're able to grow, continue to take advantage of that great growth in jobs, provide that training to residents, increase their incomes then we're able to address a better affordable housing span. So it touches the whole spectrum there. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you very much. Eric Sullivan heads Denver's Housing and Opportunities for People Everywhere, or the Office of Hope, and Will Connolly directs the Metro Denver Homeless Initiative. They're new to those positions as of January. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. As the days get longer, cyclists in Colorado look forward to events like Pedal the Plains, Ride the Rockies, and the Colorado Classic. Neil Hansen of Centennial is excited for cycling season two. His latest book, Pilgrim Spokes, covers the second half of a cross-country ride he did a few years back, one that was much more than a physical endeavor. Neil, welcome. Thank you. Books and bikes are a real theme for you, it seems. Besides Pilgrim Spokes and Pilgrim Wheels, which covered the western portion of your trip, you have another book coming out later this year about a ride from Baton Rouge, Louisiana to Nashville, Tennessee. Is cycling an obsession for you? Oh, boy, obsession. That's, <laughs> it's a that's loaded a term, word. right? That's a tricky word. That's right. I would say there are times in my life when cycling has been an obsession. Right. There and it, it, as much as anything else, it has to do with the training that occurs around cycling, the physical activity, the endurance training. And, and that really does become a, a physical addiction. I think most athletes will confirm that. They, you get into this routine where you're, you're working hard several days a week and you don't want to miss a day. It becomes an obsession. I want to take a look at some of the raw numbers from the ride that you did in your book. Uh, you kind of did it in fits and starts. So it's starting and stopping. How long did the actual entire trip take? 35 days. Is that what you mean? The mm-hmm. total number of days yep. riding, 35 days. But it wasn't all in one, Correct. one session. Yeah. yeah, I have this thing called a job, and they don't really want me to take that much time <laughs> off at a time. But the total ride uh, of 3,400 miles uh, with 125,000 feet of climbing during the trip, uh, you estimated your cost for about $4,500. Uh, what other numbers stand out to you about the experience, maybe like how much food you you think you ate or how many calories you think you burned. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, the the calories is a tough one because when you're riding that much in a day, I I had days when I'm sure I burned seven, eight, nine thousand calories uh, and you just can't take that much food in. So your obsession during the day is not eating for pleasure, but eating for making sure you're taking enough calories. Oh. And, and actually, I've had a few people who've given me a criticism over that 
over that fact, the fact that I look at intake in terms of calories and fluid as I write. So I'll stop to take in calories and fluid. And people say, well, can't you talk more about the food? Well, I don't really know what I... I just took in some calories and fluid. That, w- that was it. So it's not like a chicken sandwich. It is literally 1,000 calories, you know, 500 calories or something like that. Exactly. And, and do you approach your meals every day like that? Nope, not at all. I'm somebody who I appreciate food, but I'm not a connoisseur. Uh, I, I once had a fellow tell me that I, some folks live to eat and some folks eat to live. I fall into the latter category. Where did you begin your bike journey and where did it end? I began in Monterey in California and it ended in Annapolis in Maryland. And when you got to Annapolis uh, at the end of the ride, uh, I read you really didn't take a lot of time to celebrate. It, it, uh, you almost ignored the accomplishment. Um, I wonder if you could read an excerpt from the book and the closing chapter where you discuss that. Sure. Big moments are like that in life. They happen, then they're past. No matter how much we try to orchestrate the moments that we want to remember, the ones we remember are the ones that catch us a little off guard. Then they're past. Try to recreate or improve them, and the real value in the moment starts to drift away. The moon hanging above the sailboat in the bay was in the perfect place that evening as we crossed the bridge. A day later, it would have been too low on the horizon. A day earlier, and it would have been too high in the sky. That morning was the only time on the entire journey across the country where we weren't pedaling before daybreak, thanks to mechanical problems. And if it weren't for that mechanical problem, we would never have been on that bridge at just that right time to be part of that scene. I didn't plan the mechanical problems or the time of day or the phase of the moon. That's just the way things came together, and my heart recognized the moment. I didn't keep pedaling across the bridge, taking casual notice of the scene over my left shoulder, but instead listened to the song of the moment that called to me. My soul recognized it for the moment of climax that it was, bringing tears of joy to my eyes as I basked in the moment. Then it was over, and everything except my brain realized that the moment on the bridge had been the point of celebration and that the moment was past. My poor little brain couldn't figure out why I was feeling guilty about not wanting to pour champagne all over everything. Your body seems to be so focused on that next crank of the bike that your next you know thing you've been doing for so long but then your your body really says we're near the end we're done with this but the question you ask is a great one it really is and and it, and I do address that in the book that here for 3400 miles I've gone across the country I've turned the crank a million and a half times I've I've done all this work and I know that there's a finish line there I know I'll arrive there when I arrive there It surprises me that I'm there. And the emotion of the moment of seeing that water kind of overcomes me. Then the moment's passed. We go out to dinner. We have a beer. And later, Dave and I both talk about this, that, okay, that's done. What's next? And Dave is the person that accompanies you on this ride. Dave is who I'm riding with. Your book is a lot more than just cycling. There There are intimate stories in the book that have nothing to do with cycling. They get very philosophical. Uh, what is it about a long-distance ride that lends itself to introspection for you? Right. Yeah, boy. And it really does. If you're in the saddle for eight, ten hours of the day, sure, you're enjoying the scenery around you as you pedal, but there's a, there's a certain methodical, you're turning the cranks at 80 RPM or 85 RPM or whatever it is that's comfortable for you. And that becomes, it just sets the tone for your mind going lots of places. 
and you have lots and lots of and it's one of the things I enjoy about cycling, frankly. One of the pivotal points in your book is an encounter with an old friend named Kathy who you meet along your bike ride, and you tell her over dinner that you've divorced from your wife, and to your surprise, she's livid. Why were you so surprised about that? <laughs> if I look back on the way that my uh, wife at the time and I handled divorce, we handled it very poorly. We we considered it to be a private matter. It was between her and I. And and I think that this interaction with Kathy helped me see that's simply not true. A marriage isn't between two people. It's it's a glue that holds the the folks around them, the family and the tribe around them together in many ways. And, and that divorce and the idea of divorce does does play a role in your book, which really kind of makes this not a typical sports book. Uh, what sort of pushback did you get from people uh, not necessarily agreeing or disagreeing with your philosophies or your politics, but who maybe say, can you just tell me about the ride? Mm, right. <clears throat> That's a really good point. I think folks who pick up the book fall into a couple of different categories. Uh, some folks are looking for a bicycle ride book, a, a trail guide. Yeah. Tell me where you started, where you ended, which turns to take. And the first version of the first book, Pilgrim Wheels, I actually wrote that way. When it got to the editor and the public and the publicist, they said, "No, no, no, no. This is this is not a bicycle book. This is a journey story." And most of the folks who read the book are not going to be cyclists. Hmm. They're going to be folks looking for a journey story. And you've got a wonderful journey story. Don't go mess it up with the trail guide. So get it out of there. And which prompted me to then create the trail guide by itself, which is which does tell the turn by turn. It's called the Pilgrim Way, by the way. It does tell turn by turn. Here are the turns I took. Here's what I discovered. Here are the things I ate. All those sorts of things. Uh, but the Pilgrim Wheels book and Pilgrim Spokes are journey books. The majority of folks who read them really aren't cyclists. It's a story about a journey, and you don't have to be a cyclist to get that. Thanks so much for joining us. You bet. Thanks for having me. Neil Hansen of Centennial is an avid cyclist and author who joined us to discuss two of his books, Pilgrim Wheels and Pilgrim Spokes, about a cross-country bicycle trip. His latest book, Pilgriming the Trace, covers a ride from Baton Rouge, Louisiana to Nashville, Tennessee. It'll be published later this year. You can read an excerpt of his latest book at cprnews.org. There's an obituary from political news outlet The Hill that's recently circled around the Internet. The obit is premature because it honors something that's still alive, the National Endowment for the Arts. Here's CPR's Gina Naba reading from it. Life without the NEA will not be a lot different than before. At its end, the agency was so small that the cost of one military jet equaled its entire grants budget. Last year, the NEA got nearly $148 million, but President Trump's proposed budget for 2018 eliminates NEA funding. CPR's arts reporter Corey Jones told Mike Lamp that last year, Colorado received more than $3 million from the NEA. Those grants went directly to 38 different agencies, groups, and schools. I'll point out two things, Mike. First, Colorado's NEA money has risen overall since 1998, and it has stayed pretty steady since the recession. Uh, Second, when you look at Colorado's own share of NEA funds, it's been about 2.7% for the last decade. So it's been pretty consistent, and where does the money go? 
Let's start with direct grant recipients. Denver gets the most, followed by other front-range cities, and then Aspen. Uh, Last year, this federal money went to the likes of the Denver Art Museum and Lighthouse Writers Workshop. Then some smaller NEA grants went to projects like the M12 Artist Studio in Byers, a small town east of Denver. There's also the Creed Repertory Theater in the mountain town of Creed. The theater gets $10,000 to $20,000 a year typically, and they use it specifically for a touring program that takes by bilingual musicals to mostly rural schools that often have no arts education. Here's Executive Director Catherine Auger. That NEA seal of approval has made it so much easier for us to attract and secure matching funds, other grants, and leverage resources. It's critical for us to have that. And if Creed Rep loses that money, Auger says they'd have to scale back their outreach tour. They'd have to charge schools more money and maybe visit fewer places. Now, you have put together some charts uh, on the NEA funding showing where it goes around Colorado. That's with the help of uh, our CPR digital editor, Jim Hill. And those are at CPRnews.org. And something there that caught my attention is uh, a lot of money that goes to something called Colorado Creative Industries. And why do they get so much NEA money? Okay, so this is when we talk about indirect grants. There are agencies around the country that partner with the NEA. They're like middlemen. And Colorado Creative Industries is one one of them. This is our state arts agency based in Denver, and it got more than $745,000 from the NEA last year. Now, the agency not only distributes all of this money as grants, but it also has to match those funds. And this is how more money gets to more rural projects. Uh, one other thing, Mike, the NEA no longer gives grants to individual artists, but the state can. Margaret Hunt directs Colorado Creative Industries, and she says they'd survive even if the NEA is cut but we would only be able to function with the state appropriation that we get. And not having federal funding to support arts and cultural programs and events is really a loss to the culture of our nation. You heard Hunt say state appropriation. Well, about two-thirds of Colorado Creative Industries' budget comes from the state. Hunt also says the NEA does plan to fulfill all of its grants for 2017. And now there is this uh, proposed elimination of the NEA in uh, the the budget proposal from the new presidential administration. How are others in Colorado reacting to that? Well, plenty of people have yet to hit the panic button since the budgeting process is a long one. Others are up in arms over the proposal. You know, there's always been debate over federal funding for the arts, but Donald Trump is the first president to formally target the endowment. And this week, 700 people responded by going to Washington, D.C. for arts advocacy. Day. That includes Jay Seller. He's the president of a group called Arts for Colorado. Every congressional district in the United States receives funds from the NEA. There's no other federal program that does that. Seller also directs a nonprofit called Think 360 Arts, which focuses on arts education. His group got $35,000 from the NEA last year. That was also matched by Colorado Creative Industries. Seller says this money goes a long way to help them support schools and artists all across the state. And what else in that uh, NEA breakdown that we see online, uh, what else from there jumps out at you? Well, it turns out that more than half of Colorado's NEA money goes to a regional organization called the Western States Arts Federation. Think of this as another middleman. West Staff is based in Denver, but it works with 12 other states. And so Colorado only sees a small fraction of the NEA money that West Staff gets. You can read more about why that is at cprnews.org. Corey Jones is CPR's arts reporter. He spoke with Mike Lamp. And that's our show. I'm Nathan Heffel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Have a great day.